In the vast deep forest of Hyrule, the great Deku Tree served as the guardian spirit. The children of the forest, the Kokiri, lived with the Deku Tree. Each Kokiri had his or her own guardian fairy, except one. This week on Legendary Adventures Podcast, Link gets his fairy and we set out for our journey to save Hyrule in 3D. The quote I started this episode off with comes from Ocarina of Time's manual, but it's really just an adaptation of the opening narration of the game presented by the Great Deku Tree. As the Deku Tree speaks, we see Link in bed. This is the third game to begin with Link sleeping. In A Link to the Past, he was awoken from his sleep by a telepathic message from the Princess Zelda. In Link's awakening, he woke up on Koholint Island after being shipwrecked. This time, he's having a nightmare. Link stands in front of the gates of a castle in the middle of a storm. The drawbridge lowers, a white horse flees, a young girl who we intuitively know to be Princess Zelda is on the horse. Then Link turns to see a sinister figure in black armor on a black horse. The man raises his hand and fires a magical attack at Link. Still, Link does not stir from his dream. Meanwhile, the great Deku Tree sends a fairy named Navi to awaken Link. The Deku Tree says it's time for Link to meet his destiny. His path will begin with a meeting with the Great Deku Tree. We're then treated to a showcase of the new 3D graphics of the game. Ocarina of Time does a wonderful job establishing its 3D space. The game uses 3D well, and this is the first hint of it we see as Navi flies through the forest in a first-person perspective. We see some sights and characters that we'll soon meet, and there's a little joke where Navi bumps into a lattice. It's a joke that wouldn't really work in a non-3D space. Navi awakens Link, and it's time for our journey to begin. The game grants players control only briefly before it's taken away again as a new character, Soraya, is introduced. Her name is the first of many references to Zelda II scattered throughout this game. As mentioned in the last episode, the development of Ocarina of Time started with a desire to revisit the ideas of Zelda II. Soraya is named after the town with the river bridge in the second region of the game. Soraya soon sets Link free to explore, and explore we must. This tutorial section is similar to the one that we found in Link's Awakening. Players are granted a relatively small area to explore at their leisure. And while players are given a clear goal, there's no rush. The tone here is light and fun rather than tense and dramatic. I found this time just to run around, explore, talk with characters, and complete little tasks essential. I don't know if it's a quirk of the game itself or the controller that I'm using, but I found it harder to control this original Nintendo 64 version of the game than the 3DS remake. I'm playing on Wii U and I'm using a Wii U Pro controller. I suspect the controller has something to do with it. Previous Nintendo design controllers featured octagonal gates around the joysticks to help find the cardinal directions. The Wii U has round gates. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it did contribute to some of my trouble. For example, I often found myself playing the wrong notes on the ocarina. It felt right to me, but I was apparently just enough to diagonal for it to read as something other than what I intended. At the same time, I understand that this is an early 3D game, and the 3DS version, which I've played more recently and probably more overall, likely has some refinements over the original game. 
The player's abilities are limited at first. Players have to figure out how to play the game through their action and by speaking to other characters around the forest. You'll likely notice that you can see each of the Kokiri's fairy companions before the character themselves loads into the space. Yoshiaki Koizumi said this is an example of the team working around the limitations of the Nintendo 64. In an Iwata Asks interview, he said, The village has a lot of trees and lots of people live there, but it was difficult to display them all at once. I came up with the idea of having each person living there followed around by a fairy. That way, even if you just showed the fairies, you know its owner is there too. Players who wish to gain information on how to play the game can keep their eye out for these fairies. Descriptions of how to play can be long, but they can also mostly be skipped by simply not talking to other characters. Well, most of the characters anyway. Players will need to talk to one in order to advance. Mido, the boss of the Kokiri. Players will learn from the other characters that he's a bit of a bully, with multiple Kokiri referring to him as Mean Old Mido. He blocks the path to the Great Deku Tree, preventing players from going forward without a sword and shield. This keeps players from venturing too far into the game before they've really come to grasp the controls and how to play. It should also be noted that Mido is the second reference to Zelda 2 that we've seen here. He's named after the harbor town found north and east of King's Tomb. The Kokiri Forest in Ocarina of Time holds a series of challenges that aren't explicitly spelled out. For example, there's a row of platforms at a pond near the shop. If players successfully jump across the pond using these platforms, they're given a rupee. Most jumping is done automatically in the game. Players simply run to the edge of a platform and link jumps. There are varying accounts of how this particular mechanic came about. Series co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto claims it was his idea. In an Iwata Asked interview about Ocarina of Time 3D, he said, I thought of auto-jump on one of my days off. I couldn't wait to get to work on Monday. I gathered everyone to work on Monday morning. I said, we're going to do something called auto-jump. Everyone's response was, say what? The team that had made the Mario games was going to give up the jump button. Miyamoto went on to say that the auto-jump allowed them to easily program different poses Link could make based off of where he was jumping from. For example, they could animate Link diving when jumping from a great height. Co-director Eiji Onuma has a different account. In an interview with The Guardian, he said that auto-jump arose out of his own difficulties with what he called jump games like Mario. He said, I always miss the point where I should land, and I always cry out and say, wait a minute, is that the end of the whole story? Is there no rescue from that? The truth is perhaps somewhere in between. In an Awada Asks interview, Yoshiaki Koizumi noted there was originally a jump button in early versions of the game. And in an interview translated by Shmopulations, Miyamoto suggested the auto-jump was added to reduce frustration. He said, I thought if we added jumping, it would be one too many gameplay elements, and it would be frustrating if you're in the middle of a dungeon and you had to make some pixel-perfect jump to progress. If we had really tried to make the mechanic fun, it would have turned Ocarina into a completely different game. Anyway, let's get back to the challenges scattered across Kokiri Forest. They're found through exploring and talking through other characters. One challenge sees Link demonstrating his ability to jump on command in combat situations through the use of the A button. Link can jump side to side and do a backflip and a dodge and a forward jumping attack as long as he is Z targeting an object. There are various rupees scattered around to be collected, and they are essential for Link to acquire a shield. A shop in the village contains mostly items that players can find elsewhere for free, and their presence in the shop just allows players to avoid spending time harvesting items through spending rupees. The shop also contains a shield. It can be purchased for 40 rupees. In a change from past Zelda games, Link now has an equipment menu. Swords, shields, tunics, and boots are all managed through this menu. It's an example of Ocarina of Time leaning more towards the RPG elements of the Zelda series. Zelda 2 is often the one game in the series references having a strong RPG bent, 
but those influences can really be seen in every game. Equipment, weapons, and other types of loot are major parts of RPG games. Past Zelda games simplified the concept of having equipment by having any collected upgrades, whether it be a sword or a tunic, just be automatically added to Link and replace the previous version of the equipment. There is no swapping between different versions of equipment. Here, Link has a wider variety of swords, shields, tunics, and boots that can be equipped, but they're limited in use based on Link's age, and they often provide specific abilities for Link, meaning you'll be more likely to use them only during certain situations. Ocarina of Time simplifies the equipment concept compared to most RPG games by issuing stats. That means players don't have to spend time weighing minute differences between pieces of gear, and the equipment is never just a piece of loot. If I'm honest, I feel the equipment menu is a little clunky. We'll see improvements on this concept in later games, and in Ocarina of Time 3D, notably the boots were removed from the equipment menu in that version, allowing for quick swapping in use. To the north, on the other end of the village, there's a raised area. It's the home to the Know-It-All Brothers. It acts something similar to the library in Link's Awakening. It's a place where written instructions can be acquired. Though there are no deep, dark secrets to be found here this time, behind the house there's a small crawl space leading to a challenge area. Players will have to avoid a boulder to reach a treasure chest and obtain the Kokiri Sword. A sign instructs players to use Z-targeting to center the camera behind Link. This is an essential skill to see around corners. We won't really see spaces like this in later Zelda games, however. It's a quirk of the early 3D design. Players can have the boulder hit them without them seeing it. Later games would avoid sections like this which require the use of the camera recentering ability in this way. Kokiri Forest also contains the Lost Woods. It's on the hill opposite of the one where the sword is found. Players are free to explore this area. In a callback to the original game, it's comprised of screens that look nearly identical to each other. Players will have to learn the trick of getting through. It will be taught formally later, but persistent players can find their way in and it will give a hint of things to come. They won't be able to fully interact with everything the forest holds. Some items which are acquired later will be needed to play mini-games or unlock some features, but players can explore there if they want. With both a sword and shield equipped, Link can venture on to meet with the Great Deku Tree. It's not only the forest guardian spirit, but the first dungeon of the game. As a starting dungeon, the Great Deku Tree is very strong. This is a dungeon that should put to rest any idea that the Zelda team isn't making good use of the 3D space they're designing in. The whole dungeon is a showcase of 3D space, and it would not work in 2D. It also does an excellent job of introducing and then expanding upon mechanics and puzzles, which play off of each other and increase in difficulty as the dungeon progresses. I would describe the music of the dungeon as ethereal. It has a spiritual quality to it with long, sustained notes and no notable melody. This is by design. Koji Kondo said, The original orders from the director were, For dungeons, try to create music that doesn't really have a melody, nothing to latch onto. Describing the dungeon in a 1998 interview published on Glitterberry's Game Translations, Eiji Onuma said, it wasn't made as a place that had sprung into existence, rather it was a thing that had always been there. The dungeons of Zelda are usually planned so the player must retrieve keys to continue onwards, but at the beginning this isn't required. We will see that the first three dungeons of the game comprising the past section do not contain any keys as he said. The dungeon spans five floors, three above ground and two basement levels. It's further divided into three distinct parts. 
The first part happens within the trunk and the branches of the Great Deku Tree itself. It covers the first three above ground floors. The second section happens in the first basement level, within an ancient carved out structure beneath the Deku Tree. We can see its roots sinking deep into the ground. The third section happens on the second basement level. It feels maybe a little more natural than the middle section, and it happens among the lowest roots of the tree. As players enter the dungeon, they're sure to notice a spider web covering a hole in the middle of the floor. Navi points out to the player that they can see a lower level below the web. This gives players their goal for the section, break through the web and go below. The dungeon does a good job of funneling players down the correct path. There's no way to advance on the first floor, and there are two ways up to the second, a ladder and a wall covered with climbable vines. So naturally, players will head up to the next floor. There is a platform extending out over the web on the second floor, suggesting to players what they'll have to do to break through the web. There's a life heart pickup placed at the end as a further incentive to get players to make the jump and see that they will land on the web, but not break it. On the second floor, a wall covered in climbable vines is clearly the path to get the extra height needed to break through the spider web. But there are spiders known as waltulas crawling all over the wall, preventing players from going further up. There's a chest with the dungeon mat found at the base of the vine wall, and unable to go up, players will take a path that winds around to a door which leads to a set of rooms which represent the first of two branches of the Deku tree. The branch is made up of two rooms, and the first players will encounter a Deku scrub. This room ensures players are able to defeat a scrub by first using their shield to bounce a Deku nut back at it, and then drawing their sword. The scrub will surrender and offer a gameplay tip. Being able to defeat Deku scrubs is essential for completing this dungeon. In the following room, players can jump over a gap to open a chest with the dungeon item inside, the slingshot. With the slingshot, we can open the path to the third floor. Players have to practice using this new item before they're allowed to leave the room. A ladder is pinned near the ceiling. Players must shoot it to get it down. It's a small puzzle, but one that really could only be carried out in 3D. After using the slingshot to clear the waltulas, players can move up to the third story. Here players will find larger Skultula spider enemies and a second branch room. This branch is optional. It contains a jumping challenge to get the compass. The compass marks chests and the boss location on the map. It also adds a marker for the last door Link entered and a marker for Link on the mini-map, making it much more useful. Players will also find a gold Skultula in this room. Gold Skultulas represent the game-spanning collectathon quest for Ocarina of Time. It's the second collectathon quest ever for the series. The first was the secret seashells in Link's Awakening. In this game, the gold Skultulas must be killed in order to obtain a token. The tokens are then traded for equipment and upgrades. There are 100 gold Skultulas in all. More will be found inside this dungeon and other dungeons in the game. There are also other gold Skultulas which can be found on the world map but only at night. In most cases, the gold Skultulas make a distinct shuffling sound to help players track them down. Back out to the trunk, players can leap from the third story to break through the spider web below and enter the second section. It's a clean break between sections too. Players don't ever have to return to the first section. There is a wall covered with vines if players wish to climb to return, but it's not required. The second section is built on a loop. Players must move room to room on a set circular path to reach a raised area in this first room that currently can't be accessed. The segment is notably built around the concept of burning spiderwebs in order to advance. The first room is set up to clearly teach players this concept. By pressing a floor switch, a torch activates behind a spiderweb, burning it away, 
revealing not only the torch, but an optional treasure chest. Players can then use a Deku stick to carry the fire from the torch to another door blocked by a spider web and burn that web away. Through the door, players will encounter the second Deku scrub. Once it's defeated, it will offer a hint for a later Deku scrub encounter. This particular hint has become iconic among Zelda fans. Link must hit the scrubs in a set order. 2, 3, 1, or 23 is number 1. An eye switch above the door must be shot in order to advance. In past games, this likely would have been a floor switch, but by raising it above the door, the developers continue to showcase their 3D space. The next room has a pool of water in the center. There's a spike trap sitting above the center pool and a platform that moves back and forth across the room. There's not enough room to ride on the platform and avoid the spike trap. As players approach the water, Navi explains that they can dive down, giving players a clear hint on what to do. There is a switch under the water which lowers the water level, allowing players to ride the platform across and avoid the spike trap. After crossing the water, players get a tutorial on how to push and climb on blocks. Notably, the block is limited in movement by a raised track. There's no way to mess this up. As players move on, they will encounter baby Goma enemies which drop from the ceiling, again furthering that push and that use of 3D space. Players can look up and even use their slingshot to defeat the enemies before they can drop if they so choose. Players will also run into a bombable wall which blocks access to the gold Skultula. You can't have bombs at this point in the game. Bombs are acquired in the next dungeon. That means players will have to return later to get this Skultula if they want it. A Link to the Past had a similar room to this in its first dungeon, and it's perhaps a nod to that. Once players return to the first room, it will be clear that they need to burn a spiderweb on the floor. But the torches in this raised area are all out of reach. Players must push a block off a ledge to make it so they can return to this raised portion of the room from the lower portion. This allows players to go to that original torch that they lit with the floor switch to get fire and then to return to this web on the floor and roll to burn it away. The third and lowest section of the dungeon contains only two rooms. The first contains the Deku Scrub puzzle that players were tipped off about earlier. The second room is the boss room. Players need to hit the Deku Scrubs in the order of 2, 3, 1. When a scrub is hit in the correct order, it will turn blue and freeze in place. So we first hit the middle scrub, then the scrub on the right, ending with the scrub on the left. With the final scrub, we draw our sword to fully defeat it. It will then give players a hint on how to beat the boss as it surrenders. As players enter the boss room, they're shown a dramatic POV cutscene with the camera zooming in on Link. But once control is returned to the player, the boss is nowhere to be seen. To start the fight, players must look up and center their camera on Queen Goma, essentially making eye contact. Another showcase of 3D space. Goma is a reimagined boss from the original game. It's described as an arachnid, but in Ocarina of Time, it really doesn't look anything like a spider. In an interview with Famiga Magazine, which was also published on IGN, Shigeru Miyamoto said Goma's design had to change with 3D. He said they combined a crab with a bear to design this version of Goma. It delivers alien-like eggs, he said. It's gross. Players must shoot Goma in her eye when it turns red and then land hits with the sword. Once Goma falls, players are awarded a heart container. It's notable that in this game, the heart containers are once again optional. That's a callback to the original game. The previous three games, Link's Awakening, Link to the Past, and Zelda 2, all required a level up after leading a boss. 
Outside the Deku Tree, it reveals to Link that his mission was doomed from the start. The Deku Tree will die. He explains that a man from the desert cursed him in an attempt to gain the spiritual stone of courage. The tree tells Link the myth outlining the creation of Hyrule and the Triforce. This is the first time we've seen this myth outlined in-game. Previously, it was only included in the manual of A Link to the Past. According to the myth, three goddesses descended upon the chaos that was Hyrule. Each represents an attribute, courage, wisdom, and power. They create the land, life, and the laws that govern it. Then the goddesses departed, leaving behind the mystical Triforce, an object of great power which grants wishes to the holder. Link is then sent to Hyrule Castle to find Princess Zelda. In a nice moment, as Link turns to leave the forest, we see Navi pause just briefly to say goodbye to the Great Deku Tree. Next week, we'll head to Castletown, Kakariku Village, Death Mountain, and Dodongo's Cavern. If you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider subscribing. Please also consider sharing this podcast with a friend. If you have already subscribed, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm Paul Riley. Thanks for listening.